Well, hi, my name is Morris. I'm one of the leaders at Christchurch. Can I add my welcome to Lindsay's? It is great to have you tuning in to be with us today. I just want to give you a moment to do uh, one or both of two things. Uh, the first is you may have children you need to uh, tend to. You might need to throw snacks or Lego at them um, or colouring or something like that. You may need to do that. Or if you don't have a Bible open or on your phone, it would be very useful um, if you're able to do that. You might even need be able to do it in your laptop beside what you're watching this on. And uh, we're in Mark chapter 11 and 12. It will really help you follow along if you look at that. And just to explain what we're doing while you're sorting those things out, we're doing this series in Mark's Gospel, which is uh, one of the biographies of Jesus in the Bible. And we've called the series Recaptivated because we're hoping that if you're a Christian, looking at the story of Jesus' life will warm your heart to him again. And if you're not, if you're new to this, we want to say to you, Jesus is the most enthralling, amazing person who ever lived. And we hope you'll enjoy seeing that with us as we look at his life. Well, hopefully you've been able to sort out uh, either your kids or your Bible or both. And as we talk about the enthralling character of Jesus, today I'm just going to remind us that last week we saw the thing that makes Jesus angry. Now actually, there's very little that makes Jesus angry. He is never angry with anyone who comes to him genuinely seeking his help. If you read Mark's Gospel, no matter how bad they've been, if they want his help, they get it. And in this section of Mark's Gospel we're in at the moment, he's constantly under attack, but he's rarely angry. He responds to the faintest interest, the smallest faith with joyful acceptance and assurance. But last week we found him angry. And the thing that made him angry was when powerful people were using God's name for their own purposes. The only act of violence we have uh, recorded, him recorded perpetrating, was against a temple with God his Father's name on it, but was not showing what God his Father was like. So I think we can say, without doubt, he would be against a political leader holding a Bible outside a church to establish his own power and credibility. But just to be clear before I get on my high horse about political leaders, he is just as against all the ways that I want to make a bit of religious observance, a bit of saying the right thing, all the ways I want to use that to make me look better than I actually am. That is just as problematic to what Jesus has been teaching about. There are people and organisations and groups that I am in that say we belong to God, but we don't care about all the people who don't know God. Well, that is having God's name and not being like God. There are people who smile and sing, but don't serve anybody. That is being very unlike God. There are lots of families who use the label Christian, or we are a Christian family, but they're not in the least bit interested in people who aren't Christians, and that is unlike God. Now, just be clear, Jesus' nature, his posture, is to be gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. But we, us, you, we are capable of provoking his righteous anger 
if we claim to be better than we are, we try and cover up what we're really like using religion, and that comes out in our attitude to others. Instead of being people who know we need his help, and that coming out in our attitude to others. So if we see that world leaders who use the Bible for their own gain deserve Jesus' anger, we have to see that it's true that left to our own devices, we become very convinced that we're important and right and that we deserve honour for our good deeds and our bad deeds should be ignored, especially because we're doing the religious thing. And if that's us, we're in trouble too. Now, when someone comes in and starts saying outrageous things like that, particularly if they accompany it by like throwing stuff everywhere and tearing the place up, our immediate question is this, who gave you the right? Who gave you the right to make that type of judgment about me? You don't know what my religion means. I mean, here's this guy standing here in another excellent shirt. Here's this guy standing on my screen saying, uh, trying to be better than you are, hiding what you're really like, it's not good enough and it will make God angry. Well, who gave me the right to say things like that? No one gave me the right. But we are in the process of trying to learn to listen to Jesus. And it seems to me to be what he is saying. Now you can look for yourself. But as he heads into this controversy, the same question comes to him. Who gave you the right? These people, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They're a delegation from this group called the Sanhedrin, uh, who, and they were very invested in this way of things running that Jesus hated. And so they say to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right to ruin everything for us? And it's quite a good question. Does Jesus have the right to say to you and me, you're not good enough? That pretending to be good enough is offensive to God that you have to turn away from that and say my only hope is in Jesus. And if you try and get religion to prove you're a cut above other people, God will be furious. Who gave him a right to say that? Well, that's what these people come to ask. And the first thing we see is this. Fake questions don't get answers. Now, let's be clear. These guys in Jewish society were the big Guns. So at the time, uh, Jewish society was ruled by the Romans. This council made up of these guys is the sort of religious government. And so they're very worried about that particular apple cart being upset. So here comes in this guy kicking off, publicly criticising them. And they say, who gave you the right? But Jesus seems to avoid their question. He seems almost randomly to start talking about John the Baptist, who's someone totally different. You might remember John featured earlier in the story of Mark. He was Jesus' cousin. And he called people to repent, to turn back to God, before Jesus came. But he said about Jesus, Jesus is the one coming who can really change people. But John had his head chopped off by a nasty king in chapter 6. So it felt like his bit of the story was over quite a long time ago. Why is Jesus suddenly bringing him up again? Well, it's a clever question to ask these teachers of the law 
because Jesus was baptized by John. And at the moment Jesus was baptized by John, God spoke from heaven, basically saying everyone should listen to Jesus. So if they say John's baptism is from God, they're not just agreeing with John, they're agreeing with Jesus. But if they say John's baptism was from man, well, the people will be angry with us and Jesus is shaking them up against us already, so we don't really want that. So they wouldn't answer. We're about to see in the next story, by asking, does Jesus really have the right to tell me how to live? We're actually asking the right question. That is a good thing to ask. You need to work out for yourself whether it's right to submit yourself to what Jesus says or it's okay to keep doing the thing Jesus hates, which is to ignore God but keep being religious occasionally. Which of those is right is a really important question. So by asking, they were close to the truth. And in fact, they knew John was from God, really. So they're very close to taking the lid off the whole thing. John's baptism was from God. Jesus is his son. He can remake us into people who really know God. But asking that question, they were right to ask. But what stops them seeing the truth? Two things. First thing, they say to each other, well, Jesus will say, if we say it's from God, Jesus will say, why didn't you believe him? Which is a right question. But they had clocked that if John was right, Jesus was right, and they were wrong. And they did not want that. So easier not to answer the question. Many people today do the same thing. We're not really truth seekers a lot of the time because we know that if this turns out to be true, if what Jesus says about me is true, then he's right and I'm wrong. And that will upset the whole apple cart of life I've built for myself. You could be sitting at home listening, even with the Bible open, but thinking, mm, my response to Jesus only goes as far as I want it to. I'm only unearthing the truth if it doesn't call me to change. See, the other reason they don't give an answer, they're afraid of the people. Their response to whether something is true or not is totally conditioned by what other people will think of it. That's much more important than whether it's true. There are people like that too, people who say they're Christians and people who say they're not. Asking this question, who gave you the right, not so they can work out whether to listen to Jesus, but so they can work out how much Jesus will embarrass them if they do listen to him. Oh, I just need to get around what Jesus is right to tell me to do here because doing what he says will be embarrassing. That's sometimes why we're asking the question. If you come asking about Jesus' authority, but really your subtext is you don't want his authority, or you are only asking so you can have your response conditioned by what other people think, you'll get from him what they get from him, which is basically a sort of seminar. Pretty much nothing. We run a thing at Christchurch called Exploring Christianity, which I've led a couple of times. And it is amazing the people who seem to get it when you do it and the people who seem to really not get it when you do it. It doesn't seem that divide to have anything to do with being clever or anything to do with how close or religious or interested you are in the first place when you arrive. 
It tends to be people who come knowing they need help and they take that help no matter how it affects their life or what people think of them. And the people who don't, they tend to be saying, well, this is all very interesting. I might even think it's true, but I'm not accepting it if Jesus is going to challenge me here about this. Or I'll look into this, but I couldn't have people thinking I've got religion. They get it here, but not here. And it's trying true of Christians too. There are Christians who look at other Christians who have the deep, life-changing, passionate relationship with Jesus, who pray big prayers and see them answered, who have deep wells of forgiveness to draw from that I don't have. They have the life of the true disciple that Jesus has talked about before. And if we're not like that, it can be that underneath, in myself, I'm saying, I'm not really going to let you tell me how to live, Jesus. I live my life and make my own choices and you can fit in. Think of the things Jesus has said in Mark. His people are supposed to be the servants of everyone, fishers of men, praying forgivers. People say, well, there's one of those areas I don't really want you affecting me. But then they discover their Christian life is sort of stunted and dry and disinterested. Oh, they might be very well respected by their middle-class mortgage neighbours or very well respected by their right-on social justice warrior mates by not letting Jesus tell them what they should do. But they've also never experienced the serving, praying, forgiving, God-indwelling life that Jesus is offering. And that's because if it's not a real question, you don't get a real answer. If you're determined to walk round the outside looking in, then you'll continue to walk around the outside looking in. But if you're willing to respond to Jesus' real authority, saying he can be in charge of your life, then you'll meet Jesus. But you might have noted, he still hasn't answered the question. That's the second thing we're going to see in this passage. Who did give him the right? If you ever played the game, what's worse than? What's worse than finding a worm in your apple, finding half a worm in your apple. So let's play what's worse than at the moment. What's worse than breaking lockdown rules to sneak out to the park to be with seven friends? Not six, but seven. Well, I think worse than that would be sneaking out of your house and breaking lockdown rules to go and, I don't know, cheat on your spouse. Why is that worse? Because um, just breaking the rules is wrong, but breaking the rules and rejecting a relationship with someone on your side and hurting them is worse. Now what Jesus is saying in this story is that he has a right to be heard because he's the one who makes the rules. So not doing what he says is wrong, but also he is the one who loves and serves us and that's the other reason it's wrong to reject him. He tells this story. It is a story with a not very hidden meaning. A man planted a vineyard and put tenants in it. Now, clue to the, this is that in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, God's people were often referred to as a vineyard. 
But every time the man whose vineyard it was sent people to collect what was his, they beat those people up or they shamed them or even worse, they killed them. And finally he sends his beloved son, brackets, the exact phrase God has used about Jesus in Mark's gospel, close brackets, thinking surely they will respect him. But the tenant said, if we get rid of him, that's us getting rid of the authority of the master who we don't want. In fact, it didn't. The master came and judged them for killing his son. And somehow, in a way that's not clear in the story, the rejected dead son is turned into the cornerstone of something new that the master is building. Something is created by someone and people are put there as tenants. That's Jesus' story. There is one all-powerful being who lends his stuff to people, and people are capable of using his stuff to do great things. The one who owns it asks that the tenants, the people who live in his creation, do the things with their stuff he's lent them that matter to him. He sends Prophets, those are their words we have in the Bible. And everyone is rejected and ignored. And eventually in history God said, Surely they will respect my beloved son. But in fact when God's beloved son came into the world, that his father had made, we killed him. Now we didn't kill him because we weren't there. But still today, we reject him in order to get rid of his father's authority. We take God's son and we use him for things that are wrong. You know, political capital. Or just take personal comfort from him. But we never actually accept his right as son of the creator to rule our lives. We're just like those tenants. And bad tenants will be destroyed. And the son who was dead will be alive again and will be the cornerstone of a whole new way of living. And that is what God did do. Because he took the evil rejection of his beloved son and used it as a way of starting a whole new kingdom that is ruled by Jesus. Now cleverly, the religious leaders, very sharp, very smart, realise he is speaking this story about them. Of course, this is what he's saying. He says, listen, I'm the son of the vineyard owner and you're the tenants. So I have every right to tell you what to do. Here's the story we've been told. We've been told that the world is here basically by accident and therefore what I choose has no implications except for me and a few people around me. And I have the right to choose what I wish. And anyone who's trying to limit my choices is some sort of abuser. And there are even Christians who realise that story isn't right. They still behave that way. You can gently challenge a Christian about how they're living and they say, it's my life. How dare you tell me to do anything? I'll do what I want. Even though they say they've accepted this different story that Jesus is telling. The world belongs to God. He made it. People were put in this world with great dignity and ability. 
There we are the only tenants of the universe who can create and produce and make decisions that reflect God's character. And so when God comes to us and says, it's my creation, reflect me in it, produce fruit that fits with what I made the world for, what do we say? We say, who give you the right? It's my life. I'll do what I want. It's true over church history. The people who've brought that message to people, many of them have ended up rejected and killed. And God says, yes, but surely you'd respect my son. But still today, people might want to sign up for a bit of Jesus' teaching, but they don't want him telling them what to do. But be clear about the true story. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Jesus who was rejected and died, crushed and beaten, he was raised to life by God. And God has set him up above everyone. The beginning of a new community, a new world, a new building where God actually lives. And that's not just theology. That is why Jesus has every right to tell us what to do. He has the right to say to them, in Mark's Gospel, your temple is misrepresenting God and I don't care how nice you think it is, it needs to go. He has the right to say to us, it doesn't matter what a good person you think you are, you need to trust in Jesus to make you right with God. Humble yourself before him. He's going to say some pretty controversial things in this next bit of the passage, a lot about how we interact with politics. He's going to really say that actually focusing your life around getting married is not a very sensible option. He's going to say there is nothing more important, nothing more important than loving God and loving your neighbour. He makes no mention of self-care. It's next week's stuff, but it's all pretty controversial to us. But is Jesus putting his finger on a life which basically does what it wants and throws a bit of religion in and says it is not okay. You need to trust me to put you right with God. You need to listen to me. And I am the son of the vineyard owner. So I have every right to be heard. Who gave Jesus the right to talk to us like that? The whole story gives him the right. We don't live in a world with a passive, faraway God who wants us to throw some religion at him now and again. We live in a vineyard lovingly planted by God who put us in it to do great things that reflect his character. And that same God sent his own son into the world to be killed. And that same God is building a new world with Jesus at the centre in the corner. That gives him the right to tell us. What's worse than ignoring the God who made the world? Ignoring the God whose son died to put you right with him and now rules over everything. What are the ways today you are pushing away Jesus' authority over your life? It could be hypocrisy, self-righteousness, thinking I'm okay. It could be some area where you know you're not doing the right thing, but you're like, mm, I just don't really think Jesus has the right to tell me what to do there. 
Jesus calls you on that. He calls us to something different to that. He calls us to humble trust in him that admits we are wrong. And then a life that demonstrates that humility and grace to others. And he has every right to confront us about that. So we should listen. Let's pray together. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus into the world for us. And we're sorry that we try to ignore him, even though he has every right to tell us how to live. And we pray that you would open our hearts to see that he deserves our respect. And our hearts would be one to his self-giving love. And that we would be part of this new community he is building. Rather than doing old hypocritical temple religion. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.